Well, good morning, church. It's uh, good to be gathered with you again on this, this Lord's Day. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I also serve as one of the pastors here at Stafford Baptist Church. We continue our service of worship this morning now by hearing God's word proclaimed. So please join with me, if you would, in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, in verse 16. Matthew 10, 16, where we're going to be reading through verse 33. Matthew 10, 16 through 33. While you turn there, let me tell you a story. The story of a man who lived shortly after Jesus Christ in the city of Smyrna in modern-day Turkey. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp was converted to Christ through the ministry of the Apostle John, and he became an important leader in the early church. After 70 years of faithful service to Christ and defense of the Apostle's teaching, Polycarp died as a martyr. And the the story of his martyrdom is, is gripping. It begins when guards came to arrest him at his home. Polycarp treated them with such, such cheerful and, and serene manner that they wondered why they would be sent to arrest such an, an old and gentle man. Polycarp had a, a table set for his captors, invited them to, to dine with him, and he requested an hour before they took him away so that he could pray uninterrupted. Well, after his prayer, he was arrested, handed over to Roman authorities. Those authorities tried to convince him to save himself. What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and sacrificing, and to be saved? But Polycarp refused. Persuasion was replaced with threats. They brought him to the stadium. There, the Roman Roman governor tried to dissuade him to swear by Caesar's fortune, recant and say, away with the atheists. In that day, because Christians didn't worship the Roman gods, they were considered atheists. Take the oath and I will set you free. Curse Christ. Well, Polycarp's reply is one of the sweetest confessions of Christ that you may ever hear. He said, for 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The governor continued threats, I have wild beasts. I'll throw them to you if you don't change your mind. If you disregard the beasts, I'll have you consumed by fire unless you repent. But Polycarp did not fear fang or fire. He replied, You threaten a fire that burns for a time and is quickly extinguished. Yet a fire that you know nothing about awaits the wicked in judgment to come and in eternal punishment. But what are you waiting for? Do what you will. So for Polycarp, a pyre was prepared. He was bound and placed among the logs. After a moving prayer of praise, the fire was lit. Witnesses at the stadium report that the fire surrounded him, but his body was not touched. So an executioner was called to kill him with a sword. And there Polycarp died. 
Polycarp, persecuted and put to death for refusing to worship anyone but Christ, his king. And through it all, Polycarp had no fear, but love for his captors and resolute allegiance to his king. I wonder if you can imagine being in in his shoes. What would have been like? This is real history. It feels so different from our experience as Christians in Stafford in 2021. How could someone face such hostility and treat his captors with courtesy and courage? I wonder, how would you act today if guards came to your house to drag you before governors? How could anyone not be terrified? Where is God in all of this? Well, our passage this morning in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' instruction to his disciples to prepare us for persecution, just like what Polycarp faced. The, the same kind of persecution is, is faced by believers today throughout the world. Jesus calls all of his disciples, including you and, and I, to be ready to face the same without fear. Let's read Jesus' instructions in Matthew 10, starting in verse 16. Afterwards, I'll I'll lead us in a prayer of illumination. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, How much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, 
I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, it is, it is appropriate for us as we come to a sobering word of promised danger. Lord, of your assurance to not fear, Lord, that we would ask your help. Lord, this morning we pray that, that by the same spirit that inspired this word, you would this morning illuminate it to our hearts and minds. Lord, that we would understand what Jesus teaches, not just as knowledge, but as the, the hope of our life, even in the face of death. Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Well, our our main idea this morning is this. Jesus leads you into persecution, but you have nothing to fear. Jesus leads you into persecution, but you have nothing to fear. Our our text this morning picks up right where we left off last week. Jesus instructing his, his 12 apostles, sending them out as laborers into the harvest. Disciples called, equipped, and and sent. To, to seek, proclaim, and to care. Well, here in these verses, we have the, the sobering expectation that, that as they go, they will be delivered over to governors and to death. That might sound like a fearful expectation, but, but Jesus goes on to, to comfort his disciples, comforts them to, to have no fear. Well, the the same is true for you and I today, that that Jesus leads us into persecution, but we have nothing to fear. We'll split that big idea right down the middle and consider in, in two points. So first, Jesus leads you into persecution. Jesus leads you into persecution in verses 16 through 25. And second, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear in verses 26 through 33. So look, look with me down at verse 16 in our, our first point, Jesus leads you into persecution. You see here that, that Jesus continues to instruct his disciples for their, their coming mission. Is it going to be like a, a gap year, a chance for, for tourism and, and new experiences? No. No, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus returns to an image he used previously of a shepherd with his sheep. But but what kind of shepherd would direct his sheep into the midst of wolves? That's what shepherds are supposed to to guard against. That's what they're there for. So hearing this, our immediate reaction might be hesitancy. Can we trust this shepherd? Why willingly send sheep to their predators? Well, we need to mix metaphors. But remember, back in in 937, the reason Jesus sends out his laborers is because the harvest is plentiful. It isn't that there are only wolves out there, but there are also sheep. Sheep wandering that need to be called back to their shepherd. If you remember, Jesus instructed them to, to earnestly pray for him to send out laborers. To send out sheep, if you will, into the midst of wolves. So far from hesitant, this should be their earnest desire. 
They're serious, impassioned, and persistent hope that Jesus would do exactly this, send them into the midst of wolves. And as they go, as this is their desire, he assures them they are going into certain danger. So as they go there in verse 16, he he warns them, he, he calls them to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. You see, he uses two animals to, to illustrate what they're to be like, a, a serpent and a dove. A, a serpent, like the one that we encounter, encounter in the Garden of Eden, that they were considered the, the most cunning of the animals. Snakes have a, a, song, a, a strong sense of self-preservation, getting out of the way of, of harm. So the, his disciples are to have the, the cunning of snakes, but without the venom. Jesus goes on to say that they're to be innocent as doves. He's telling them to be avoiding conflicts and, and attacks where possible. But they're not to be so cautious that they would lead to the harm of others. We see an example of what he means down in verse 23, if you look there. Right? When they are persecuted, he gives them permission to flee like serpents. We see Jesus do this occasionally. In John chapter 10, verse 39, when Jews were prepared to to stone Jesus, or at least to arrest him, he escapes from their hands. Even for Jesus, faithfulness doesn't always mean subjecting subjecting yourself to harm. As we read the, the Acts of the Apostles, they occasionally did the same, fleeing persecution, But what we don't see is Jesus or his apostles ever retaliating or defending themselves with with hostility in return. Rather, it's as Jesus teaches, we have to pray for our persecutors. Or as Paul put it in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Wise as serpents Innocent as doves. In the next few verses, 17 and following, he he drops the figurative language and and speaks plainly. His disciples will be delivered over to courts and to kings. The the picture we have is, is those in power exercising their authority to oppose their message and mission. But to our surprise, this too is a part of of Jesus' plan. He says there at the end of verse 18 that, that the point of this is so that they can bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Witness not of, of their innocence of any charges, but, but witness to Christ to proclaim who he is and, and what he has done to announce his, his coming kingdom. It's, it's important for us to note here what, what Jesus is predicting, they, they will deliver you, it doesn't happen immediately for his apostles. We have, have no reports of their arrests or, or anyone put to death in their first journey, the journey he's preparing them for here. Jesus has in mind a, a more distant future. We read this morning in, in Acts chapter 4 of one such episode when when John and Peter were arrested and brought before the governing authorities. 
throughout that book, the, the Acts of the Apostles, they're, they're delivered to, to courts and, and some even put to death. James, in Acts 12, is, is killed by King Herod. Or maybe Jesus has in mind the even more distant future, like with Polycarp, after the apostles are gone. Or maybe even our recent past, the 2020 beheading of, of the Nigerian pastor, Luan Adimi, and many others like him. Jesus expects his followers, all the way from the apostles to now, to be treated with hostility because of their association with him. I wonder if you noticed, as we read twice in this paragraph, his mention of why, why they're receiving such hostile treatment. Tucked there into the middle of verse 18, dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Or there again in in the middle of verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. They're not being arrested and hated because of their their political views or, or nasty behavior. No, they're persecuted because of their allegiance to Jesus. And so from the earliest time, Christians have been crucified. Burned, impaled, drowned, starved, wrecked, all because of their association with Jesus, because they belong to this king. You know, Paul, the apostle, he he was once a persecutor of the early church, but but himself, when converted, became a, a victim of that persecution. In writing to his pastoral protege, Timothy, he promised that, that he too would be persecuted. In 2 Timothy 3, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All, he says, all will be persecuted. Yes, persecution may be less where there has been more Christian influence. But the fact remains that the unbelieving world will always remain deeply hostile to God, to the gospel, and to those who represent that message. The hostility we see is is so great in verse 21 that that it will lead even to family members delivering their, their siblings, their children, their parents to death. Betrayed by your own blood. And it's true. Even today, Christians in places like Afghanistan and Somalia face this risk. If their family discovers their faith, they risk being disowned or worse, killed to preserve their family's honor. Friends, up up to this point, Jesus hasn't said anything specifically about God, but but consider, what kind of God must he be to deserve such absolute and resolute allegiance? And absolute and resolute hostility. The discipleship that Jesus describes here is, is the kind of resolved allegiance 
that generals expect of their soldiers at war, willing to die. Not the fickle affections of a first crush. God is is not something you add to the, the side of life for a bit more purpose or to be hashtag blessed. It's most certainly not about what he offers you. Though he certainly does offer so much. No, it's absolutely about how worthy he is. So I ask, is your God so big that he deserves your resolute allegiance despite any danger? Or does he compete in your life with so many other loyalties? Well, as Jesus leads his disciples into persecution here, he also promises help. First, he he promises his spirit to to help them speak as they witness to authorities. There in verses 19 and and 20. It's what happened to to Peter in Acts 4, what we read earlier. Remember, this is the man who denied Christ three times, and that before a slave girl. Now, he's boldly proclaiming his resolute allegiance to Christ before rulers telling them that there is no other name by which they might be saved. That he says that he will not listen to them and stop proclaiming and teaching in this name. How is it? How is it that Peter can go from so weak to so bold? Well, it said filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Fulfillment of exactly what Jesus promises here. Or or consider Polycarp, who we thought about earlier. Polycarp didn't take time to write a speech before heading into the stadium, but we're still encouraged by his words two millennia later. For 86 years I have been his servant and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Words given in the moment by the Holy Spirit. We see these words again as the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the Spirit would help him and all like him bear witness in their moment of trial. How encouraging is it that the Trinity is here with the persecuted believer? The Son sending as shepherd with the Spirit, the Spirit of the Father speaking through them. What we have here is, is not a, a promise of deliverance, but the great comfort of our God with us and witnessing through us in the moment of trial. But there, there are more promises that Jesus gives here in these verses. The second promise is there at the end of, of verse 23, that the Son of Man will come. Whatever else this means, it certainly means that their persecution will be temporary. It will one day end. Jesus, the the Son of Man, the the ruler from heaven with a, a universal and everlasting kingdom, he will come again. He will put an end to to all hostility toward his people. 
Their suffering is temporary. But the greatest promise is there at the end of verse 22. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Better than deliverance, better even than the end of hostility, Jesus promises to his disciples salvation. Uh, You might read those few words and, and assume that salvation is earned by endurance. You get saved in the end as a reward for enduring. But but that's not how the Bible presents salvation. Salvation is not the reward of endurance. No, endurance is the fruit of true salvation. True salvation endures. Brothers and sisters, salvation is, is always a gift, not earned. It is of grace. Your salvation rests on, on Jesus' ability to keep you. Jesus' mission, according to his words in, in John 6, 38-39, is, is to keep us until we are saved. There he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The Father's will here is that Jesus would lose none that he has given. So endurance in the believer is evidence of Jesus' keeping according to the will of the Father. What, what comfort, brothers and sisters. What comfort in the face of such great adversity. The, the good news of the gospel is that salvation is, is a gift. And it comes with the endurance to face whatever, whatever you might face. Jesus Christ died willingly in your place. Suffering on the cross what, what your sins deserve. And because of that work, you are offered forgiveness. And forgiveness not only, but, but grace to endure through faith, not because you've earned it, but because you are kept and loved by your Savior. And, and with this salvation comes to the expectation of persecution. If you're with Christ at the cross, if that death was for you, you are with Christ everywhere else. That's the point of verses 24 and 25. He says that his disciple will be like his teacher or, or servants like their master. Well, our, our teacher and master is Jesus and his disciples, his servants, well, they'll be treated just like him. Remember, back in Matthew nine thirty four, the Pharisees said that, that Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons. They maligned Jesus, calling him a, a synonym for Satan. Well, Jesus says that if that's how they treated him, how much more will they treat his disciples, those of his household, in this way? If they hated and murdered Jesus... How much more will they hate and murder his disciples? 
So I asked Stafford Baptist, how much do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to identify with Jesus enough to be forgiven of your sins and and promised eternal life? What about being arrested and sentenced to death like he was? The clear meaning of Jesus' words here is that we should expect persecution. Everything in these verses of what he predicts for us, he first suffered for himself. He was mocked, hated, abused, dragged before governors and kings to bear witness, and betrayed by by one closest to him, his friend, to death. The cross was the greatest human suffering in, in all of human history, taking in himself God's wrath for the sins of the world. But for the joy set before him, for salvation accomplished, his name exalted, God glorified, Jesus endured. If our Lord was so treated, those that follow him Those that seek to be like him should expect the same. Throughout the world, our brothers and sisters in North Korea, China, Libya, Nigeria, India, and and more regularly are imprisoned, tortured, and killed for their allegiance to Jesus. Hear their testimony this morning. Persecution is not strange. It is the birthright of a Christian. When the church in Thessalonica was suffering persecution, Paul encouraged that church by reminding them that they were destined for this. Destined. A.K.A. this is all part of the plan. Paul goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 3.4, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So let me do the same for you this morning and tell you beforehand that we are to suffer affliction. Jesus knowingly sends you out as sheep among wolves. It's part of the plan. For now, American Christians benefit from from a unique interruption from imprisonment and and death. But it isn't because the world has has stopped opposing Christ. All people, ourselves included, are born enemies of God and hostile to Him. The default position of, of every human heart is opposition to God. Yes, it it is to be mourned, but it it shouldn't take us by surprise. So, Stafford Baptist, are you ready to face hostility for the sake of Christ? For us today, it might not look like imprisonment or death. It might be the insults 1 Peter talks about, where he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It might mean being mocked for your beliefs or contempt for not celebrating immoral behavior. It might mean being ignored by by people 
you wish could be your friends. It might mean being courteous to coworkers who are consistently rude. Jesus speaks to us today to prepare for that time now, to hear and get ready, brothers and sisters. When it happens, it, it won't be something strange. Know in advance that when it comes, it is to be expected. And to decide now, to, today, that Jesus is worth your resolute allegiance despite any danger or threat. That he promises you salvation and endurance by his grace. And that he will be with you. It it might be most natural for us, expecting these kinds of threats to to be afraid. To know that they're coming, but, but to fear. So our compassionate shepherd meets us, and next in our second point, assures us that we have nothing to fear. Jesus leads you into persecution, but, but you have nothing to fear. So let's look at verses, verses 26 through 33 in our second point. You have nothing to fear. Immediately, Jesus gives three reasons why we need not fear whatever, whatever might happen to us. You see three times in these verses the command to not fear. Those three reasons are that the truth will be made known, death is not final, and you are valued. So first, in verses 26 and 27, the truth will be known. Let me reread those verses. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. What what Jesus is saying here is that they need not fear because one day the truth will be known. You know, Jesus and his disciples have been called Beelzebul. Jesus has has said previously in his his Sermon on the Mount that, that all kinds of evil will be uttered against them falsely, falsely on his account. But those false accusations will one day be proven wrong. The truth will be made known. Jesus' identity is, is now hidden. It's, it's covered. He speaks in parable, parables and, and gives the secrets of his kingdom to his disciples in private. But the day is coming at his resurrection when Jesus' identity, identity will be revealed before all of creation. His disciples will then announce all the mysteries of the king and his kingdom like in the light of day and shouting from rooftops. Jesus' disciples need not fear because in the end the truth will be known. False accusations against, against Jesus, against you, may prevail for a time, but they will expire. The truth will never expire. Either in this life or the next, we will be vindicated. So our task in verse 27 is to have a ministry more public than than even Jesus had. After the resurrection, when his identity is revealed and his disciples understand it all, 
Then the time will come to announce it plainly, loudly to the world. Because it is true. So no matter what people think of you or the the claims of Christ you follow, the truth will prevail. So you can endure without fear because the truth will be known. One day every tongue, every tongue will confess the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. So first, the truth will be known, but second, death is not final. Look again at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The second reason not to fear is because death is not final. People can only kill us. After we're dead, they can do absolutely nothing to us. As soon as that blade cut Polycarp, the most powerful kingdom in the world had absolutely no ability to do anything more to him. That might sound extreme. Normally we think of death as the ultimate cost. It's the strongest form of punishment our our courts can administer. But the fact is death Is not final. All people have a soul that that lives past death, a soul that will live forever. And the only one that has power over the soul is God. He is the one you should fear. Men can destroy your body, yes, but after that, they can do no more. God has power to destroy both souls. And body in the place of condemnation in hell. He is a righteous judge who makes eternal judgments. It makes no sense to fear the puny power of men in light of the absolute authority of God. It says, Psalm 118 says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Death is not final. Third and finally, we have no reason to fear because because we are valued. Look at verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many Sparrows. The smallest matters in the universe, the the death of two sparrows valued at a penny, the number of hairs on your head are intimately known and controlled by your Heavenly Father. And if, if that's the case, if the smallest matters in the universe, then we must say that nothing else escapes His notice his care and direction, especially not the death of the ones that he values. We need not fear death because as his children, we are valued by God. Death by persecution or whatever else never comes to us apart from his care and direction. Our compassionate shepherd 
isn't using us as pawns for his purposes. Hear him. You. You are of more value than many sparrows. You know, when we're afraid, it's, it's normal to convince us that maybe those, those dangers are not real. I think of, of our children, right? When they're afraid of the dark or monsters in the closet. What we normally do is, is convince them that those dangers aren't real, right? There's nothing to be afraid of in the dark. There are no monsters in your closet. But that's not what Jesus does here. These dangers are real. These threats are to be expected. But, but Jesus gives us reason not to fear. Reasons that are far greater than the reality of the threats. When we are afraid, we can actively trust these promises to fight those fears with faith. Jesus leads us into persecution, but we have nothing to fear. In the the face of great danger and competing fears, we, we all have a choice. In verses 32 and and 33, Jesus presses this choice on on his disciples and us today to swear allegiance to Christ or to disavow him. There There is no middle ground. All of humanity, for all of history, can be divided into two. Those who at, at any cost will acknowledge Christ or those who will not. That's one of the dangers of living in a society like ours with, with relatively so little persecution. It lets us float in a large middle ground that really isn't there. With no one forcing us to make the choice. In fact, where persecution is strongest, the church thrives. The saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The absence of persecution in our lives may result in more harm than its presence. It might deceive people to think that their allegiance is with Jesus when it's not. Jesus here recognizes that the threat of death will lead some to reveal their true allegiance and deny him before men as they're dragged before governors and kings. It's what the the Roman governors demanded of, of Polycarp. He could have called Caesar Lord, recanted Jesus, and lived. But Polycarp endured with joy because of what Jesus promises us here. That those who acknowledge him before men will be acknowledged before the Father in heaven. Christ, our Savior and Mediator, will stand before the righteous judge on our behalf. And the eternal judgment will be life. So to deny Jesus under the pressure of public opinion 
is to forsake our only hope in life and death. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, our shepherd, sends us out as sheep among wolves. He calls us to face the the threat of hatred and even death as his witnesses without fear. In the midst of, of such danger, we can know that we are valued by our Father, acknowledged by our Savior and Lord before the throne of God. And in fact, and in fact, God is often pleased, especially in such suffering, to give us his comfort. Let me conclude this morning with the words of, of Thomas Brooks on the joys that, that God gives in the pains of persecutions. Listen as I read to close. Suffering times are times when the Lord is pleased to give his people some sense of his favor. When they are in suffering for righteousness' sake, for the gospel's sake, then usually God causes his face to shine upon them. Now they shall hear best news from heaven when they hear worst from earth. God loves to smile most upon his people when the world frowns most. When the world puts its iron chains upon their legs, then God puts golden chains about their necks. When the world puts a bitter cup into their hands, then God drops some of his honey, some of his goodness and sweetness into it. When the world is ready to stone them, then God gives them the white stone. When the world cries out, crucify them, crucify them, then they hear that sweet voice from heaven. These are my beloved ones in whom I am well pleased. When the world gnashes upon them and presents all imaginary tortures before them, then the Lord opens paradise to them, as he did to Stephen. When Paul and Silas were in prison for the gospel's sake, then God fills them with such an unspeakable joy that they cannot but be singing when others are sleeping. God turns their prison into a palace, a paradise. They turn his mercies into praise. Paul and Silas found more pleasure than pain, more joy than sorrow, more sweet than bitter, more day than night in that prison. It was God's lifting up the light of his countenance that made the martyrs to sing in the fire, to clap their hands in the flames, and to tread upon hot burning coals as upon beds of roses. This made the martyrs say, when they felt the flames come to their beards, what a small pain is this compared to the glory to come. What is a drop of vinegar put into an ocean of wine? What is it for one to have a rainy day that is to take possession of a kingdom? Friends, let's hope for that kingdom where Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray. Father, what joy in our hearts to see the endurance of the saints through the ages because of the promises of Christ. Father, this morning we take fresh hope that one day we will be with Christ our Savior forevermore, that this world has nothing for us to fear, 
because he promises to keep us. That despite the great threats that this world can muster, they can only kill us. We go to where there is no death and joy forevermore. What is one rainy day for those who look forward to the possession of a kingdom? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.